You guys are great. I love you guys. Um, oh, I'll just let that finish out. <laughs> uh, well, good morning, Northwest Hills. Second service, so good to see you guys. Um, first service was kind of fun. I was preaching and I was using a, uh, this headset, except I was using our guest headset, because uh, Josh has his own special headset that he uses in a little body pack. And uh, halfway through the set, it died. It didn't just die like the battery ran out. Like, it died, like, slowly. The volume just went down until nobody could hear me anymore. And then Mark came up and handed me the, the little handheld mic there, and I finished out that way. But now I have Josh's set, so I feel... Power. Yeah, that's right. I feel the power. So I feel good. I, I, it's, this morning has just been awesome. I, uh, I had kind of a funny realization this week. So for those of you who don't know, my name has been said, like, three times today, but my name is Justin Jackson. I'm the worship director. Uh, something I get to do normally is to pick the songs that we do on a Sunday morning to sing. Um, and this process is, is very unique. It's very special. Um, these songs are not, like, my personal favorite songs for the week or whatever. Like, I go in, and I'm reading the Word. I'm talking with Josh, figuring out what we're talking about in Scripture, what's going to line up well. And rarely ever is that full set list, like, all the songs I just really love. Like, all the songs I'm just really into right now. And I was looking at the set list this week, which Mark is leading, and I said to myself, oh, man, the one week I'm preaching, they're doing all my favorite songs. Um, which is fine because I realized, of course, they're doing all my favorite songs. Uh, they're all about the same concept, which is what we're talking about today, which is faith. And faith is like my favorite concept in scripture. So this is super fun. I'm so glad to get to do this. We're going to be in Romans 4 this morning, but let's just open our time in prayer, giving this morning to our God. Heavenly Father, you are so good. And uh, it's just a blast to be here in your house. Lord, you give us such hope. Lord, we thank you for the way you broke into creation. You saved us. God, it was by nothing of our own. We're going to see that this morning. That it was by no works of ours that we were saved. But God, you gave us justification. We just thank you for that. We want to take a moment and just thank you. And Lord, as we, as we go into your word, as I try to preach a sermon, I pray that this would be your words, not mine. And that your spirit would just move in this room. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay. So we've been going through the series in Romans, and Josh has been guiding us along kind of a journey of the relationship between humanity and God. And we're just trying to like build some clarity. And to be honest, I'm really glad that I'm preaching today and not last week or the week before that or the week before that. Uh, Because three weeks ago, we opened up Romans 1, and we were presented with a significant problem, right? God's wrath is being revealed on us because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Josh kind of unpacked these words in our first week. Uh, Ungodliness meaning we have rejected the authority and the values of God. And unrighteousness meaning that we just practice things we ought not to practice. And in chapter 2, we are told that God will render to each one according to their works. And remember, Josh had that moment where he was like, ooh, right? Like it's really a bad thing. Uh, We'll render to each one according to his works. Um regardless of whether or not we have the law, because those who don't have the law still have our consciences, which seem to scream for justice. And those of us who do have the law don't do it. And in fact, uh, on top of that, God's name is blasphemed because we're so bad at being like him. But in chapter three, we found that we are justified freely, right? We had that great moment uh, where with a, with a but now, God has, uh, uh, we, we, we have justice. We, we've been justified freely. Josh explained that justification or righteousness is like a validated performance record, which we, we didn't have, but Jesus gave to us. 
We deserved punishment as justice for the things that we'd done, but instead received grace for someone else's right living. Right? Uh, Josh talked about Jesus' name being scratched off the resume and, uh, and our name uh, being put on there instead. Uh, so we've been moving through this progression. And the final piece of this puzzle is actually going to come next week when Josh talks about what it took to make that resume available to us. Um, but this week I get to talk about how it is given to us, what the, what the mechanism is for receiving this gift. So Paul hits us with this amazing news in chapter 3 that we can be justified. And the great part is that this justification is not based on works. Because one, if it were justified by works, some people might think they might have some reason to boast uh, about it, but, which is silly, because number two, if justification was based on works, we'd all be doomed. We'd all be condemned. God instead provides an alternative method for justification, which is faith. And this is absolutely amazing and an elegant solution to our problem, because faith in God or trust in God returns us back to the time when man and God existed in perfect relationship to one another. Let me explain. We'll be in Romans 4 this morning, but we're not going to start there. Uh, we're actually going to start a little bit earlier. I believe the page in your Bibles, if you look it up in your Bibles, is like page 2 or 3. Uh, this chapter usually have, it has a heading over it that reads, The Fall. It's Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5. So Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 5. I'm not going to have you stand for this part. We'll stand when we read Romans. I just want to kind of set the tone for what we're going to be talking about this morning. So in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. Notice that word, crafty. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So just let that, let that sink in for a minute. We, uh, so many of us have probably read this chapter a million times. We're very, very familiar with what this scene is. But just let that sink in, that moment where everything Paul talks about in Romans 1 through 3, it all has its genesis right here, no pun intended. Uh, we existed in perfect shalom, that's a Hebrew word for perfect peace, we existed in perfect peace with the God of the universe, and we broke it. But look at the device the serpent uses to deceive us. Did God really say, well, that's not true. God's playing you. He does not have your best interests in mind. With a few crafty words, fear and doubt enter the heart of man. Could God not be who he says he is? I don't think I can trust him. And thus, sin and brokenness and all the stuff Paul talks about in Romans 1, 2, and 3 enters the world. But notice, Adam and Eve, they weren't like sitting around waiting for an opportunity to overthrow God, right? They, they weren't plotting against him. They had no plan built on like vengeance or spite. They just became afraid. They feared that God wasn't who he said he was. They feared that he couldn't or wasn't going to take care of them. And they lost faith. And as they lost faith in God their relationship with God was broken. So today we're going to compare and contrast the theological concepts of faith and fear. <clears throat> now, I want to get a couple things out of the way early. Both these words have been severely misinterpreted and taken out of context in the years since Paul wrote Romans. So in an effort to provide some clarity, 
I first want to get us all on the same page when I use the word faith or fear so no one's mishearing me. Let's start with fear. When I say fear, I'm not talking about the word used in Proverbs 9.10. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or, or what does it say? Yeah, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That word, which better translates to respect or reverence or awe, is not the fear I'm talking about. Okay, the fear I'm talking about is the kind of fear that causes us not to trust God. It's the fear that clouds our minds with thoughts other than God. Uh, it's actually, it's kind of fear, as, a, as an example, it's the kind of fear that Peter experienced when he focused on the waves rather than Jesus, right? There's this beautiful scene in the Gospels where uh, the disciples are out in a boat, and there's a big storm, and the, the boat is getting rocked all over the place, and they see Jesus walking on the waves towards them. Really, really cool. And Peter, in faith, steps out of the boat and starts walking on the water to Jesus, and he's focused, he's dialed in on Jesus. And then what happens? The waves start crashing all around him. He gets distracted. He starts looking at the waves. He becomes fearful and he begins to sink. That's the fear I'm talking about. <clears throat> uh, similarly, when I say faith, I'm not talking about simple belief. Because uh, Paul's not talking about simple belief. In fact, uh, I was reading in the Bible, this Bible commentary I got for one of my classes. And in it, the author talks about how um, the word faith uh, written in the Bible... Uh, in almost every case, the better word in our English language translating for it is trust or independence, or uh, dependence, trust or dependence. This definition takes faith a little further, and in a minute we're going to look at Paul's text to see what he has to say about this concept, but I just kind of want us to rewire, reorient our minds, uh, shift our perspective, because my main point, which we'll wrap back around to after looking at Romans, is this. Justification is the end result of placing our faith in God, and this faith that justifies us, trusting in him, is mutually exclusive to the fear which causes us to doubt him and his goodness. So, let's get into Romans 4. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, verses, one, <clears throat> not the whole chapter. I encourage you um, this week with your community groups, uh, with your, in just your quiet time, read this entire chapter. It's phenomenal. It is a huge breath of fresh air after the last few chapters, which all had great content in them, but this, this is just like so encouraging. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And then I'm going to skip ahead to verses 18 through 25. So I'm going to ask us to stand as we read God's word this morning. <clears throat> Give reverence to him and his name. I'll be reading from the ESV, Romans 4, 1 through 3, 18 through 25. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 18, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness, or deadness, it's another word for that, of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver considering the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for, his, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, church. You may have a seat. So Paul starts chapter 4 at a place many of his readers would have an instant connection with, 
right? If, if you remember from the last three weeks, there was disunity between the Jewish Christians living in Rome and the Gentile Christians who had joined the church. And so Paul's desire in writing Romans was to unite the two groups, provide clarity to them. Uh, and he starts this chapter talking about Abraham. And the Jews considered Abraham uh, this paragon of their religion. Uh, he was a perfect example of how to be a good follower of God. They surmised the works Abraham did during his life were an example to follow. Uh, Paul takes their presupposition about Abraham and turns it on its head. Instead of being the greatest example of what it means to earn an eternal reward, Abraham is a perfect example of being justified by faith. He's a test case for Paul's argument, uh, which he's been formulating since chapter 1. And most of Paul's readers uh, knew Abraham. They knew about his life. They knew his, his story. So Paul gives almost no context here for Abraham's life. And, and although I'm sure many of us are familiar with the story of Abraham, um, it's important for us to remember who he was and his place in like the greater narrative of scripture. So we're going to take a couple minutes and just do a quick recap of Abraham's life. I promise it's going to be fast. Whew, here we go. Abram, which was his original name, was the founder of the nation of Israel. He initially lived in the land of Ur, which is on the edge of what historians call the Fertile Crescent. It's this land area in the Middle East. Um, it's located along and around some really influential rivers. Uh, it kind of does this crescent. That's why they call it the Fertile Crescent. And Ur was on the far eastern edge. Whatever. Um, Ur was on the far eastern edge. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, we know some things about Abram from the story. We... Uh, from what we know in Genesis, Abram's family was pretty influential. Uh, he was probably very wealthy. Uh, we know he had lots of livestock and lots of servants. Uh, kind of the one thing he was missing was an heir. Uh, he had no children. His wife, Sarai, not Sarah yet, uh, was barren, meaning she couldn't bear children. Uh, and what is important for us to take away from Abram's life this morning is that God placed him in multiple situations in which he needed to trust God in some pretty big ways. Uh, on separate occasions, God tells him to, and I'm just going to list these off, uh, leave his homeland, travel across the known world. He was told, all right, I need you to go to the land of Canaan. It's on the other side of the Fertile Crescent. You've got to cross all the way over there. He is told to believe that he's going to have a son at the ripe old age of 100 uh, from his barren wife, who was 90. He's told to believe that through his son, that son, he would be the father of a huge nation that would bless the whole earth. And at one point in his life, later on, he was actually told to sacrifice that same son that he was promised as like a sign of loyalty to God. Now, spoilers, God does not actually let Abraham kill his son. He doesn't want him to kill his son. It's a test of faith. And Abraham, because he trusted God, did all these things, or at least he tried to. And because of this, his descendants, the Jews, revered him and used him as an example of what it looks like to be unfailingly obedient to God. The argument was, when God told Abraham to do something, he did it. Uh, and his obedient works made him righteous in the eyes of God. He was blessed by God, and if we obey God, we will receive similar blessings. That was their logic. So now Paul, on the heels of his statement in Romans 3, that we are justified by God's grace through faith, makes the argument that Abraham is actually not an example of justification by works, but rather justification by faith. The key verse here, and Paul is quoting Hebrew scripture, is verse 3. So if you look at Romans 4, verse 3, he says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's from the Old Testament. Paul is saying, yeah, Abraham did all these things, but that's not the root of his justification. The root of Abraham's justification came from the faith he placed in God before he did those things. Now, 
As we established earlier, uh, the word we need to think of when we hear Abraham believed or Abraham had faith is actually the word trust. And we hear the word trust, and for some of us, we might start to uh, squirm in our seats a little bit. Because here's the thing about trust. It involves surrendering our independence. And we love our independence, don't we, church? The basic definition of independence means uh, not requiring or relying on others. Trust says, you know what? I will cede my freedom over to you because you know better than me and you have my best interests in mind. Independence says the only person who's going to look out for me is me. You do not have my best interests in mind and I need to take care of myself. Or the more insidious message of independence says, well, I just don't want to be a burden to anyone else. My problems are my problems and no one should have to deal with them except for me. It's funny, I feel like there's this massive shift in our culture right now between uh, isolation and community. Uh, You know, we have all this new technology that allows us to communicate long distance. You know, we have these big online communities now like Reddit and Twitter where people can feel like they're connected to a community, but they're not really ever face-to-face with people. They feel more isolated. They feel more safe in their isolation. Um, To me, I'm a movie buff, and nowhere is this more obvious than Hollywood, this tension. Uh... We have the emergence in the last 50 years of this like strong, independent protagonist, this ideal person that doesn't need anyone, can take care of themselves, and honestly can't trust anyone because probably somewhere in their backstory they've been burned by trusting others. But there's also this massive push for teamwork. Uh, Marvel just wrapped up their Infinity Saga. Anybody watch Avengers Endgame? Yeah, show of hands. A few people. It's just the highest grossing movie in the world, whatever. Um... They just wrapped up their Infinity Saga, and I find it so interesting. Did you notice this sort of like overarching theme throughout all these movies? It's this idea of like, united we stand, divided we fall, right? It's coursing through the veins of, of this whole series. Like the, the good guys always seem to face evil together, and they fail when they're apart, and it's usually always against like this one main bad guy. And Avengers are like the most obvious example right now, but you don't have to look very far to find it in other places too. The archetype has existed in storytelling forever. Uh, Lord of the Rings has the idea of this like fellowship of the ring, right? Like Frodo can't get the ring to Mordor without the fellowship, without his friends. Uh, Harry Potter, similarly, all about friendship. Like this big major theme is like, oh yeah, Harry's the chosen one, but he needs his friends, otherwise he fails. He has to trust others. And then of course, like, this, this really great example that I love, uh, if you go back and watch the original Star Wars movie, Luke Skywalker fails and is a dead guy if Han Solo and Chewbacca do not show up and help him at the last second, right? Like, he needs his friends. Like, that movie ends very differently if he's on his own, right? These archetypes resonate with the innermost part of us because it screams for, like, relationship, for trust, and interdependence. And also notice a dominant trait in all the villains of these movies. They're loners. They trust no one. Most of their actions are rooted in fear, fear of losing power, fear of losing their control. They do terrible things in in a desperate attempt to stay in control of their lives. Listen to what the Apostle John has to say about fear. I'm reading from 1 John 4, starting in verse 15. So we have come to know and to believe, or another way of saying it would be trust in, we have come to know and trust in the love of God that he has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence, ooh, another word for faith, for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, 
but perfect love casts out fear. And this fear, this is this, is this works-based salvation. This is what Paul's talking about. It's a, it's a, it's a fear-based salvation. I think about my mom, who grew up in a very uh, kind of works-based, it was, it was still Christianity, but it was very heavily uh, works-based Christianity. And she lived in constant fear. She lived in constant anxiety that the things she was doing were taking away her salvation, <clears throat> and she had to do more good things in order to be saved. And Paul's saying, no. So he's saying Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's argument is Abraham set aside his fears and trusted in God. Paul goes on to say he hoped against hope. Well, what does that mean? Hope against hope. In his exhaustive commentary on the book of Romans, uh, Douglas Moo provides a great way to understand this phrase. I love this. Uh, He says of the two hopes, hope against hope. In hope which is of God against man's hope. Abraham had every reason, from a human point of view, to give up on attempting to produce a child with Sarah, right? From a human perspective, his faith flew in the face of that hope which is found purely in the evidence of reason and common sense, yet his faith was based firmly on the hope that springs from the promise of God. And this wasn't like a blind, careless leap, okay? It's a leap from the evidence of his senses to the security of God's word and promise. And I love the use of the word dead in this passage, in this Romans passage, when he says, uh, uh, who is, Abraham, who was as good as dead because he was about 100, or the deadness of Sarah's womb. Um, that's deliberate, right? Paul is, is brilliant. He's making reference to so many passages in Scripture in which we see God taking what was dead and bringing it to life. Right? It's the ultimate evidence against simply believing what our senses tell us. Because by human reasoning, when something is dead, it's dead. Like, it ain't coming back. But the promise of God to Abraham was to bring life. Abraham was secure in God. He rested in God. He relied on God. He leaned into God, had a relationship with God, and was justified as he drew near to God. And then, and only then, his works were an outpouring of obedience. Uh, I think it's interesting, you know, we call them the, the fruit of the Spirit, not the root of the Spirit. Like, the fruit is like evidence that the tree is alive. I feel like that's just, just a good example of like what, what this looks like even now. Our works are evidence of our trust in God. So, it's interesting that on the one hand, the fearful side of society says, be as free as you can, don't attach yourself to anyone because guess what, you will get burned. And yet on the other hand, There's something inside of us, something so human that screams for interdependence and relationship. Now, most of us, even if we're distrustful by nature, place a certain amount of trust in others all the time. Let me give you a couple of examples. Trust is necessary when receiving professional help, right? If you don't trust the professional financial advisor, uh, you're not going to uh, invest in that thing or diversify your portfolio or whatever financial advisors tell you to do. I don't know. Similarly... If you don't trust your doctor, uh, why would you take the medication they prescribe for your illness, right? When you take a medication that was prescribed to you or invest in a certain stock, on some level, you're trusting the expertise of another person and surrendering your independence to them. And your act of taking that medication is a work based on your pre-existing trust. Now, look at Paul's argument. Uh, I'm actually looking at verse 10. We didn't read this, but you can see it in the passage. I'm actually starting at verse 9. He says... For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
It was not after, but before he was circumcised. As a quick note for anyone who's wondering, um, what the heck is this guy talking about with circumcision? Well, for Abraham and his people, there were many things they did, certain customs and practices uh, that were simply meant to act as evidence of their faith and trust in God. And some people, through time and misinformation, started to believe that it was these customs that saved them. And Paul is simply making the argument, no, 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 no. The work which did not count as righteousness came as a result of the faith, which counted as righteousness. So, we have this example in Abraham, but Paul's not done, because he knows his readers are going to say, okay, well, that's Abraham. What does this have to do with me? And Paul is so brilliant here. I just love this. If last week's big highlight verse was verse 21, right, the part of, but now we have, you know, God has made his righteousness, man, or justice manifested. I can't remember exactly what you said, Josh. Um, this week's big highlight verses are verses 23 and 24. Uh, I'll read that again. <clears throat> But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Oh man, this is, this is really cool. Um, have you ever watched a movie where uh, characters are talking to one another and then a character looks like directly at the screen and starts talking to the screen and it's like the character's talking directly to you? This, this is one of those moments in scripture. I love this. Uh, Paul is saying, look, these words that were written 2,000 years ago for his people, and which 2,000 years now we're looking at his words, and he was thinking about you when he said them. Uh, <clears throat> this is one of those moments. I mean, you read the Bible, and if you believe it, then you know that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. But this, this is one of those turn-of-the-camera moments where the author says, whoever you are, these words were written for you. Right? Like God exists outside of time. He's saying these words to Abraham 2,000 years before Paul, 2,000 years, who's writing 2,000 years before us, and God's saying those words simultaneously to Abraham and you. What a gift, right? And now for application. What, why is faith so important? Like, what do we do with this? Like, because this passage seems to be more of a teaching moment than like a commanding moment. Nowhere in this passage does Paul say, so have more faith or get more faith, right? There's, there's no directive. There's no specific direction here. Paul's just informing us of the importance of trusting in God. The why is, is implied. Why should you have faith? Well, to be justified. Your faith, which is a gift from God to you, is counted to you as righteousness. And by the way, there's actually a secondary reason to have faith. Uh, your faith fills you with a hope in otherwise very, very hopeless world. I'm going to read ahead a little bit. Romans 15, 13. I don't know who's got Romans 15, but I'm stealing their thunder a little bit. Um, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our faith produces a hope that nothing else in this world could even come close to. Now, for those who say, well, trust does not come easy for me, that is totally valid. Having a predisposition to just be totally trusting right out the gate all the time is super, super rare, especially in our culture, which says, of course, like, you've got to take care of yourself. How do we learn to trust God more deeply? Well, I'll advise you the same way I'd advise somebody looking to be in a relationship with another person. Spend time with that person, right? We hang out with people, we go on dates, uh, that kind of thing. And one of the main purposes for that is building trust. Can I trust this person? Can this person, has this person proven to me that they can be trustworthy? Yeah, thankfully, we ha can do the same kind of thing with God. Uh, this last fall, we, we did a series on the spiritual disciplines, right? And the whole point of those disciplines 
is to grow in closeness to God, right? So, so spend your Sabbath with him. Rest in him. Make time for him in silence and solitude. Just you and him. Read his word, which is just chock full of evidence of his faithfulness. Uh, spending time with God helps us to trust him better. Spend time with God's people. Uh, this is the, uh, the live like Jesus part of our vision, right? Like living in community. And, and this one's tricky because I know that for some of us, this has actually had the opposite effect. Okay, and it's really sad, but people claiming to be God's people have acted in a way that are totally out, is totally outside of God's will and have given some people a tainted image of who God is. My advice to you, if that's happened to you, if you've been hurt, is first, we're all still works in progress. You know, nobody is a perfect example of living like God except actually Jesus, who was the perfect example. But other than him, the rest of us, we're all just learning as we go. Like, we're trying to be like him, but it's not easy in this life. And so that's my first note, is just, like, give a little bit of grace because people are trying to be like him. Second, for every person who has hurt you, there are hundreds, many, probably in this room right now, who deeply desire to love you and encourage you just the way God has done for them. Okay, so now for those who say, well, I trust God most of the time, but I still struggle with doubts. Uh, Let me give you a piece of encouragement. Welcome to the club. Uh, you're not alone. Everybody struggles with fear and doubt. Uh, the command to not be afraid is not made under the assumption that human beings can just flip a switch and suddenly never have any fear. Uh, but I like to think of the, the oil and water experiment. Anybody ever do that in high school where uh, you have a container and you fill it with oil and you fill it with water and then they don't mix. They just both exist in it like in two separate places. Uh, You know, I think of that. Imagine a glass full of oil, right? That's like our fear and doubt. That's us uh, pre-God stepping in. And then imagine pouring water into it. And I love, actually, it's funny how so often in Scripture, God talks about, like, his gifts being poured out onto us, right? So imagine water being poured in, and by necessity, oil has to, like, escape because it can't be in the same place. So then oil goes out, and then if oil's added back in, then water has to escape, and they kind of have this equilibrium, and there's this constant back and forth. Uh, by necessity, the more you have of one, faith or fear, the other diminishes. There will be times when your cup is full of the water of faith, and faith comes super easy. And there will be times when your cup is full of fear, but rest in the assurance that even the smallest drop of faith you hold onto is a gift from God. And it gives him all the more glory when you hold onto faith in the midst of fear. And in the times that fear comes knocking, he has said that you can cry out to him, and he will care for you. That is a promise straight from his word. Here are just a few examples. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is a great little add-on. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then a final example, one of my favorite passages of scripture of all time. I love this, this, this little scene. It's from Mark 9. It's, it has to do with Jesus. And he says, uh, and in Mark, he says, they brought the boy who had an unclean spirit to him, being Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And I love this. He said, from childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can do anything, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, 
Help my unbelief. This father who had dealt with his son's affliction his son's entire life had really good reason to doubt that Jesus could heal his son. But he cried out, not simply that Jesus would heal him, but that Jesus would give him the faith to believe that his boy could be healed. And Jesus did it. And finally, I'll just say to those who say, I trust God, but he doesn't answer me when I need him to. I'd ask you, whose timetable are you operating on? Yours or God's? Because I think most of us would admit in our world of instant streaming services and Amazon overnight shipping, we usually attribute having to wait for something as God being unfaithful to us. Let me give you an example. I'm 27 years old. I got married a little over a year ago. And probably for about 10 years prior to that, I continually asked God, okay, God, who am I supposed to marry? And really, what what I was asking in that Uh, what I was really asking God was, I see that this love that other married people have for one another, I see my friends who are dating, and and I want that, right? Like, give that to me. And for a decade, God was saying, hold on, have faith, she's coming, but I didn't want that answer. I had an idea in my mind of what was best for me, and the longer I was single, the more I let myself give in to fear. And that fear caused me to search out love in places I wasn't going to find it. That's all I'm going to say about that here. Feel free to come and talk to me about that. Actually, it's a great story of God's redemption. Uh, But here's the crazy part. In the midst of all that fear and doubt, God was still faithful, and his timing was perfect. His plan was way better than anything I could come up with. Seriously, I cannot stress this enough. Uh, I had this idea of what I wanted marriage to look like, and then I got married to Windsor, and it was totally, totally different in a way, way better way. Like, remember, God, and and remember, you you look at Abraham. God promised Abraham a son who didn't show up until Abraham was 100. God's timing does not make him any less faithful. So we have an answer to our problem of sin. We have received justification through faith, which has been poured out onto us from a faithful God. Every day, each of us has the chance to put our faith and trust in him rather than ourselves. Next week, Josh is going to talk about the means by which this gift was given to us. But in the meantime, I would simply ask you, where are you letting fear dominate your life? In what areas of your life is fear keeping you far from God? If you're having trouble trusting him, I would ask you, do you really know him? Which is okay. If you're starting to think, maybe I don't, I would just encourage you, seek him out. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word and with his people Uh, Remember, the first two parts of our vision here at North of Souls are to love Jesus and live like him, right? Anna, can you throw that that slide up for me? Love Jesus, live like Jesus. Is there fear in your life that's keeping you from loving him, from coming to church, from trusting his word? Is there distrust in your life that's keeping you from living like him, right? Living in community with his people. If there is, then ask for faith. He will give it to you. His promises have not failed They're just miracles in the making. You will find him to be infinitely more trustworthy than anyone you'll ever know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you say in your words, you trust you. God, and and I know for many of us here, that's not the easiest thing to do. But God, it's so simple. Being able to trust you, put our faith in you, that you will do what you have said you will do, You've proven yourself to be faithful. For many of us, we have experiences that say, that show us that you've been faithful. For many of us, all we have to go on is your word. 
Lord, I pray that we would dig deep to find you, search you out, to know you, and in knowing you, that we would be able to find trust. And we'd be faithful to who you are. God, you are so good. We know that you're faithful. In your name I pray. Amen.